This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Reaction Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Hannah Arendt by Samantha Rose Hill. Hannah Arendt is one of the most renowned political thinkers of the 20th century, and her work has never been more relevant than it is today. In her first book, Samantha Rose Hill weaves together new biographical details, archival documents, poems, and correspondences to reveal a woman whose passion for the life of the mind was nourished by her love of the world. Hill's compelling new biography provides an accessible introduction for those coming to Arendt for the first time, while offering new insights for those familiar with her work. Hannah Arendt by Samantha Rose Hill out now from Reaction Books in the Critical Lives series. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. There's a story that people often believe to be true about how modern society came to be, and it's a story that has implications for where we may be heading. The story goes like so. Once upon a time, humans lived in hunter-gatherer societies. Thanks to their mode of production and small scale, these communities were non-hierarchical and egalitarian, like the hunter-gatherer societies that persisted into the 20th century until today. Agriculture then changed everything, propelling the rise of property, hierarchy, and domination. The emergence of cities inevitably facilitated the emergence of a centralized, authoritarian, and bureaucratic state. That story, however, is a profoundly misleading myth, according to our guest today, archaeologist David Wengro. Wengro has a new book out, co-authored with the late, great anarchist anthropologist David Graeber, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Wengro and Graeber explore vast swaths of human history in the Americas and beyond and demonstrate that human history has been far more complex than we are usually led to believe. Non-agricultural societies could be slave societies ruled by nobles. Those societies could be felled by rebellions and replaced by very different and far more egalitarian social orders. History has not been a one-way street from hunter-gatherer communalism to agricultural hierarchy to the late-stage capitalist cage we currently inhabit. History has always been and remains contingent. Today, peering into the abyss of climate catastrophe, we can take solace knowing the future has not yet been decided on or predetermined. Humans have made history, if not under conditions of their choosing. And we can make the future, too. Also today, Astra Taylor is back guest hosting. I will be back hosting next week, I promise. Before we get rolling, I hope if you do support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig that you have been reading our new newsletter that we send out by email to those people who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. The newsletter is also available to any of you at all who want to read it on our website, thedigradio.com. But if you want it emailed to you every week, and I think you do want it emailed to you every week because it is very good, please make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. Any contribution of any amount is just fine. But if you do contribute $10 a month or more, we will send you a book or books or a tote bag or a mug. 
That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Your contributions allow for me to do this podcast for a living. They also allow me to pay everyone else who works on the show. And they make it possible for me to pay guest hosts like Astra. And what that means is that I can put a monster amount of time into preparing for these interviews while still having some free time, time to do my organizing work here in Rhode Island and whatnot. And that is just a far better reality for me. So thank you for supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you don't support us yet and can afford to do so, please do. Thank you. And here's Astra Taylor interviewing David Wengro. David Wengro is professor of comparative archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology, University College London, and has been a visiting professor at New York University. Wengro conducts archaeological fieldwork in various parts of Africa and the Middle East, and is the author of several books, including What Makes Civilization and The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, co-authored with David Graeber. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She co-founded the Debt Collective, a union for debtors, after David Graeber recruited her into the debt resistance movement in 2012. David Wengro, welcome to The Dig. Hi, Astra. So I was thinking about where in the scope of this interview we should talk about our mutual friend, David Graeber, who is also your co-author. And I just thought maybe we should just begin with him because he's going to be present throughout this. Can you talk about your collaboration with David Graeber and how it led to this book? Sure. I, I first actually got to know David in, um, in New York, really, um, where I was a visiting professor at the time at uh, New York University. They have this Institute of Fine Arts on the Upper East Side. And I was going over about three times a year. And David was, um, he wasn't between jobs anymore. He, he'd started at Goldsmiths in London, but he still had his parents' place in Manhattan. And so he was kind of commuting over. Very interesting that uh, looking back, the no academic department in North America could apparently find a home for David Graeber, but there's me, some guy from London who's already got a job at a, a well-known British university, getting flown over to hang out at NYU. I mean, the, the obscenity of it is uh, rather striking. But um, there he was, happy in his uh, home surroundings. And um, it was around the time that Occupy was taking off. It's about 2010, 11. And it only occurred to me later on, thinking back, that all the times we met, he never mentioned it, not even once, because we were so wrapped up in talking about stuff that happened thousands of years ago. And the debt book came out. So I was sitting in one of his favorite Korean restaurants, and he gives me a copy of debt with this very, very sweet inscription inside is something like for David Wengro, who's got me more excited about the past than anyone, something like that. And very, very sweet. And I gave him a copy of a much 
less successful and famous book of mine, which came out around the same time, which was, um, it was about ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's called What Makes Civilization, which he read. And um, <clears throat> he sent me this very long email. And, um, you know, I got down to about point 12 or 13 and then it just trailed off and said really we ought to sit down you know <laughs> this email's getting a bit long maybe we should maybe we should sit down and, and just keep hashing it out which we did and it kind of took off from there and it's just something we did outside the framework of our day jobs you know we didn't do any of the things that academics now typically do when you think you've got a big project or a big idea the first thing you're, you're supposed to do is apply for a grant and you know buy a teaching and so we, we we didn't do any of that sort of thing we just kind of did it for pleasure really initially but we had two kind of hooks around which we wanted to build the whole project one of them was hunter-gatherers you know it occurred to us that all of the um the big history books that 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 so like hotcakes and that everybody's reading have this completely artificial and out-of-date portrayal of what most of human history was like and, and, and what it means to live in a, a society that doesn't practice agriculture. So that was one thing. We, we wanted to give people um, much more of a flavor. All these incredible discoveries that have been made in the last 20, 30, 40 years about just the sheer diversity of human life before the invention of agriculture. So just to do away with this sort of um, crazy myth that once upon a time we all lived in these little egalitarian bands of about 10 people and so on. So put a nail in that. And the other one was about scale. I do, and maybe that's the only time I can remember David talking about Occupy actually, was something he, he often referred to is that even people who were appreciative of the movement and what it was trying to achieve would always raise this issue of scale. Participatory democracy, yeah, great, but you know how, how can you break out of that kind of intimate face-to-face -face context? And that's a very ingrained idea, which happens not to be based on any kind of scientific evidence. I mean, the, there are theories that come out of psychology and various other fields that make those claims. But they've either been refuted or heavily questioned. And actually, when you bring the evidence of history and archaeology to bear on this question, it gives you a very different picture. So we had these two things that we wanted to, to kind of get across and build whatever we do around that. And the idea was initially to write a really short pamphlet. Do you know, do you know the Prickly Paradigms. Yes, yes. Then they published fragments of an anarchist anthropology, which is the first David Graeber book I read. They may is well, that correct? They may well. I, I can't remember, but you're probably right. So we thought maybe something like that. And though they're, they're kind of position pieces, you're not allowed to use references. It's just kind of to say it's an intervention. So that that's what we had in mind, roughly. What we ended up with is is this 700-page thing with a 50-page bibliography because what we realized once we started getting into it is that the work of bringing together and synthesizing the information relating to these questions often just wasn't happening. I mean, it wasn't being done elsewhere in our fields. So we'd say, oh, look, there's... Um, interesting evidence 
here in South Asia or here by the Black Sea for these, these strange cities that nobody wants to call cities because they don't have central government and rich burials and wealth inequalities. No one knows what to call them. People invent all these funny sort of euphemisms. So let's go and look for the book on egalitarianism in early cities. <laughs> there isn't one. Uh, you know, let's uh, go and find all the examples of participatory democracy in sub-Saharan African cultures. Guess what? There isn't one. And, and so we started you know, realizing that we, we actually have to do a lot of that research and a lot of that groundwork ourselves. Um, so the project began to grow incrementally and took a, a quite unexpected turn towards the Americas, which David had done a certain amount of work on. His, his famous book on value, the, the, the false kind of it. But in fact, both of us, in terms of our specialisms, basically Africanists. You know, David's field works, Madagascar. I've done a lot of work on Northeast Africa, Egypt, Sudan, certain in, in the Middle East, um, West Asia. So, you know, if you'd have told me 15 years ago that I'd write a large book that was significantly devoted to the, the history and archaeology of the pre-Columbian of America. America said you were crazy. That was, you know, there's a steep learning curve, but for reasons that are to do with the questions we asked, we had to go there. We had to get drawn in. And one of the nice things about getting to a certain level in, in, in a university is that you've got all these wonderful colleagues who are experts and who can help you and point you towards sources and stop you going up blind alleys. The reason we got drawn in so much to the Americas is because we realized there was just something wrong with the way that the whole broad sweep of human history was being framed specifically around this issue of inequality. Actually, to begin with, you know, we'd obviously noticed that there was just an explosion of literature and research on inequality, including very long-term histories of inequality, some of which are unintentionally quite funny because they do things like, you, you, I'm never sure there's Gini coefficients or Gini coefficients. Do you know? I think it's the Gini coefficient, but I, I'm not an economist. I only play one on it's the internet. I'm an Italian economist, I think. Anyway, you know, the ratios that they produce of uh, inequality, usually income inequality. So in my field, there are even these studies that, that try and produce these, these wealth coefficients, you know, and trace them back to the Stone Age. It's like, how, what was the average income of an Ice Age mammoth hunter? <laughs> it's pretty bizarre, but it, it's kind of in the air, I guess. And we w wanted to make a contribution to that literature. We wanted to write something on the origins of, of social inequality using the latest evidence from our fields, uh, in my case, archaeology, in David's case, anthropology. And it took a little while before we realized there was something basically odd about approaching human history in that way. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, it's quite interesting you saying that he didn't tell you much about Occupy Wall Street because Occupy Wall Street is widely credited in the United States with sparking a renewed interest in the question of inequality, putting inequality front and center in academic research and in sort of the mainstream discourse. And so you all took that question further back. It's a very famous question in political philosophy. What are the origins of inequality? And there's a lot of assumptions baked into that question. So maybe... Maybe what I'd like to have you do here is talk about some of the assumptions and myths you're trying to debunk, because this book is very much a work of creative destruction, if we want to reclaim that phrase. You have to really clear the intellectual field before you can start presenting these other ways of seeing 
the present and the past. Uh, so yeah, maybe talk about what you could call the standard narrative or what some of the ideas are that you're trying to challenge. Sure. Well, we ended up having to go right back to the source of what I think you correctly refer to as a mythological view of history. You know it's a myth because you can actually summarize it in about three sentences. You know, I mean, what realistic version of the history of our entire species that wasn't a myth would you be able to summarize? I will now perform it for you. Here we go. Yes, please. We want to hear this summary. Here I go. Here we go. Our species originated in egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers and then somehow fell from grace into a state of inequality. There goes one sentence. Then we can go on and debate what that thing was. Was it agriculture? Was it the moving into cities? But we're already locked into a certain style of interrogating the evidence. You know, we're already locked into a whole set of questions about the origins of things, you know private property, where did that come from? Was it this? What caused that? But underlying it all is a very large assumption, which is that there was a time when none of these things existed. There was a time before social intercourse. What was that? Was it a society of equals? Do we know anything about it? Why do we take that as a baseline assumption? What are the implications of doing that? And um, it occurred to us that if you trace the origins of the question, if you're following me, the origins of the origins of inequality. It really goes back to an essay competition that took place. It was hosted by the Académie Dijon, France, and it was 1754 that they posed this question. What is the origin of inequality in mankind? And is it a natural state? And it occurred to us, wait a minute, you know, this is Ancien Regime France. It's about the most ranked and hierarchical society imaginable. Why does anyone think this is a, a, a sensible question? I think that it's really important to underline that point. Equality was not a virtue or a topic of discussion in the Middle Ages, for example, right? You would have assumed inequality. David found this PhD thesis by two Italian scholars um, where they'd actually done this. They'd done all the word searches in, in Latin and all you know, every conceivable language that might have been used in the Middle Ages. And, you know, there are obviously the terms exist like qualis or whatever, but they're not used in anything like the sense that we would use them today to discuss relationships between whole groups of people. And certainly there's, you know, there's no real idea of a kind of universal state of nature or an original state of humanity in which we were equals. Yes, you can find references to those things in, in classical literature uh, and in some medieval sources, but it's never assumed that, you know, that can just be taken for granted. It's one version among many possible ways of imagining what we were like um, in the Garden of Eden, or actually mostly what was imagined in the Garden of Eden is already hierarchical because Adam outranks Eve, you know. Um, so something clearly changed, changes in European systems of thought, whereby in, you know, by the 18th century, middle of the 18th century, it's not even controversial to pose that as, as a question. So what is it? What, you know, what changed? And that, is basically how we found ourselves drawn to the Americas. 
because we really here are just following what people like Rousseau, Diderot, Voltaire and others themselves tell you, which is we got these ideas from there, from those guys. It's quite interesting. The, The standard assumption is there was this transatlantic trade of products, of bodies, but somehow the fact ideas were also being exchanged is written out, right? That's right. There's quite a large literature on the movement of soft drugs, you know, tobacco, caffeinated beverages. Uh, Nobody questions that those came from the Americas to um, Europe, and nobody questions that they were part of the whole cultural revolution that gave rise to enlightenment salons and a certain culture of debate and people sitting around smoking pipes and you know, having uh, profound discussions about constitutional systems and gender and whatever else. But almost, I mean, the question almost seems to never arise that the same people who were absorbing culturally all of these substances and habits might also have absorbed some intellectual content from the people who were smoking the pipes originally, and etc. So that, yeah, I mean that, that's right. I mean it's 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 revealing how rarely the question is is asked, or if it is asked, it's asked in um, a certain way which is hard to unpick. Whereby you know a lot of these Enlightenment accounts. Uh, uh, the Americas are framed as dialogues, curious dialogues with a savage, whatever description. And by here, you, by accounts, you, you mean popular textbooks that were published in Europe that were bestsellers. Yeah. And they were made into plays. It was an absolute phenomenon in Europe at the time. The savage Harlequin, you know, apparently ran longer on the stage than I don't know, Les Miserables, Cats, or one of, you know, it's one of these shows that would never go away. Incredibly popular and influential texts, which were having a profound effect, especially apparently on on women, because uh, they did discuss things like sexual freedoms and divorce, which were difficult to discuss in other contexts. As a result of which, I think the way that modern historians of ideas have tended to look at them is exactly like that. They are ways of talking about subversive issues that would get you into trouble with the church or the state, could even get you put in prison or executed or whatever. So the general assumption is that when these subversive views are put into the mouths of a savage interlocutor... Like a puppet, essentially. Yeah, is that, that it's fabrication. The other voice isn't real. It's the European author creating exactly, as you say, like a sock puppet to voice opinions that would be dangerous, worthy to, you know. And this, this seems to be the prevailing way of looking at this literature now. And it's obviously well-intended. It's intended to stop you, you know, naively romanticizing uh, other cultures. But it has the weird effect of actually reinforcing this notion that the Western intellect, Western philosophy is this kind of hermetically sealed, you know, you you end up actually with a point of view which is actually racist, although it's 
it's confusing, right? Because it's mobilized by people who are against racism. They don't want you to romanticize and come up with noble savage tropes. And yet the end result is that you end up back where you started, which is with a position whereby it's inconceivable that something as important as the European Enlightenment could possibly owe anything to indigenous systems of thought. So the dialogue, or what was a dialogue, originally gets closed off. I mean, there's no room for dialogue anymore. What we discovered were two things, really. I mean, initially, this is not a bad illustration, actually, of how we work together as an archaeologist and anthropologist, if you don't mind me going off on a slight tangent. So we were actually working on a different topic towards the end of the book. The longest chapter in, in, in The Dawn of Everything is a kind of deconstruction of the whole concept of the state, where we really break it down into different types, different systems of domination, and show how these evolved separately, actually, until very, very recently, you know, really just the last 200 years, they've kind of come together to form what we now regard as nation states. And they are domination, physical domination, domination based on force, basically, or sovereignty, uh, as, as, as it's technically known. We illustrate this in the book via Kim Kardashian. I, I won't go there if you don't. It was David's idea. I personally wanted Beyonce, but he was fixated on Kim Kardashian. So this is the Kim Kardashian theory of why the state has no origin. But I won't spoil that for people who haven't read the book. Oh, that, <laughs> that will be what we incentivize them actually reading it. We're, we're, we're going to leave you uh, hanging, listeners. <laughs> I was hoping for an endorsement from Beyonce, but it's not going to happen. Um, so Kim Kardashian has a diamond. Why can she keep her diamond? Well, there are various ways in which she can keep her diamond. One of them is um, she could have a security detail, of people who protect her and stop anyone taking her diamond. Um, but let's do a thought experiment and imagine a world in which um, nobody can physically hurt each other. We've all got like an invisible force field around us. Could Kim still keep her diamond? Yes, she could. For example, she could hide it or she could keep it somewhere secret. In other words, this is our second basic form of domination is control via uh, the monopoly, monopolization of knowledge. So here we're talking about bureaucracy or equally esoteric systems of wisdom, that sort of thing. But let's go on with the thought experiment. Now, let's say we all take a, another potion. We're still physically invulnerable. But now we take a potion that means nobody can keep secrets. So there can't be any monopoly on, on knowledge either. Now, can Kim Kardashian still keep her diamond? Yes, she can. Because if you happen to believe that she is a very charismatic and special individual, maybe that's reason enough. And that's our third basic form of domination is what we call politics, which is basically um, charismatic, uh, sort of jockeying for position, attracting followers, convincing people that you're inherently better than somebody else or more worthy than somebody else. So three basic forms of domination, all of which can lead to control over material resources, but they're ultimately about relationships between people. And I pointed out to David that if we look at the history of the Americas on a broad scale, especially North America, it's quite striking how um, a lot of the um, most powerful and influential polities 
and systems of control we can talk about were not actually based on physical resources or on violence, as in you know, mobilization of armies and that kind of thing. They do actually seem to have been based to a significant degree on control over knowledge and esoteric forms of knowledge. There's an interesting study of this city, Cahokia, we call it Cahokia, now we don't actually know what it was called, which is in a part of your country, apparently known as the American Bottom, which sounds interesting to an English uh, person, but it's in the Mississippi Basin, and it's known as Cahokia. It's in East St. Louis, and I'm very much hoping to see it quite soon for the first time, because I'm gonna go visit my friend Mike Fraschetti at uh, the university down there. Um, now, this place has an extraordinary history whereby it became influential over a, a really vast part of, of the Midwest and sort of eastern, eastern part of, of North America from around the year 1000 AD. And somebody did a study years ago trying to understand the relationship between the city of Cahokia and its peripheries all the areas that it influenced almost sort of right up to the Great Lakes. And what they found is very interesting, which is that the kind of systems and explanations we use in uh, Eurasia don't really work because they're all predicated on economy. They're all predicated on the idea that you establish a center by basically overproducing your neighbors. So, you know, you churn out commodities. This is how it worked in Mesopotamia. If you excavate a site in the Indus Valley, you know, it's just littered with all this pottery that was basically containers for mass-produced goods produced in river valleys and river bottoms by you know, places that were very fertile, had very large centralized populations, but didn't have access to metals and minerals and all these things that don't exist in valley bottoms. You know, they're out there in the highlands or somewhere or in the forests. So the idea is that you overproduce your peripheries. You know, this is world systems theory, Emmanuel Wallerstein, André Gunder Frank, the development of underdevelopment. And someone tried to apply these kind of theories to um, Cahokia in North America and found that they basically don't work. And the reason why they don't work is, is interesting. And I promise you, we are getting back to participatory democracy, freedom and the enlightenment. I'm just going a rather circuitous route, which is slightly retracing the route of the book and how our thought patterns work. So what they found with Cahokia is that you can see all this tribute and stuff coming in from as far north as where you have sort of Iroquoian-speaking peoples, what's now upstate New York, I guess. You can see all these material goods coming in. There doesn't seem to be anything going out. So what is the center producing? And this is not the only example in the Americas. You have uh, um, other cases from South and Central America where what seems to be going out is actually something intangible. And there's, a, there's an interesting literature on the importance of these um, intangible goods or basically what is control over knowledge. So our second basic form of domination, it can be knowledge about crop cycles, the maize growing season. It's often wrapped up in various esoteric forms of, of knowledge about ancestors and so on, but it's monopolized. So I pointed out to David that one could think about, because Cahokia, effectively collapses, you know, that whole system at some point around the year 1400 or 1450, the whole thing kind of implodes. Can you say a little bit about, because it's so remarkable and it is in the backyard, basically, of so many listeners of this podcast and how this culture manifested in the traces it leaves in these large mounds, et cetera. 
Yeah, that's right. These these extraordinary mounds, these uh, effigy mounds, often which which are incredible because they form images. These are huge earthworks, images that you often couldn't see from the ground. So they're actually really only properly visible from the sky. So you know, some people think that the whole idea was to get the the gods or the ancestors to witness what humans to down here. So these are really monumental, like the, the bird mound effigy at Cahokia itself. And at some point it all ends and is replaced by something else. And I put it to David that we ought to think about what would be the opposite of a system like that, a, a, a big regional system of control based on esoteric systems of knowledge and the control by elites. of And suddenly it hit us, you know, <laughs> this is basically what happened in, in Europe. It's just that we call it the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. You know, what would that look like in another context where instead of it being basically about scripture and ancient texts, it was about things like landscape monuments and other ways of encoding knowledge um, or testimonies to some great important mythical past. And we began to tie together the, the threads. You know, is it purely coincidental that when Europeans uh, began colonizing, began showing up in the eastern woodlands of America, what they discovered there were societies that often had oral histories about once having been controlled by a cadre of priests and kings, but having got rid of them. It's sort of the, the inverse of the story that you're now deconstructing, right? Because instead of imagining some prelapsarian pre-fall Mm-hmm. world of equality, they were remembering a world of domination. Right. And the the category error, if you like, which uh, a lot of European philosophers made, either consciously or unconsciously, was to say that the reason we find these people, these groups, particularly Iroquoian and Algonquin-speaking groups, who are, to our eyes, free, they have these social freedoms, is that they were always like that. You know, they're these kind of innocent children of nature. And actually what we try and show in the book, we tie, try to tie together the threads of this ethno-historical picture of societies with highly developed cultures of debate, political debate, participatory democracy, and this deeper history of the rejection of hierarchy. At some point, um, David hit upon the literature which already existed um, about Kandirong. Oh, but first, before we go there, though, I'm going to take you back because I want to just make sure that the example of Kahakia is clear because what you're saying is it didn't just collapse spontaneously, that there was a, a revolt against the structures that you're speculating at least, right? But in other words, a conscious choice was likely made that then would have inspired this discourse that settlers encountered? It's very interesting because, um, as you might expect, there is a very lively debate among archaeologists about exactly why the whole thing imploded. But what they agree on is that after it collapsed, not only was the city abandoned, but the entire area around it was just left as a kind of wasteland a bit like the um, the Forbidden Zone in Planet of the Apes. You know, it's just just completely erased from history and memory to the extent that nobody could even remember the name of this place. 
which was the largest settlement in North America for hundreds of years. Um, so yes, uh, I think people are also making similar arguments these days for what was going on in the Southwest with the Pueblos and the whole history of Sheikha Canyon. We do seem to be looking at a conscious process of rejecting something which was pre-existing and at times was was very hierarchical and violent. Look, okay, we have evidence of human sacrifices and ritual killing of victims up on the monk's mound. Um, and um, yeah, something extremely centralized uh, that was abandoned and effectively replaced by these kind of polarized republics with highly developed constitutional habits and cultures of, of debate. So, you know, the question came out of the archaeology. What would a revolt against a, a system of power based on the monopoly of knowledge look like? Um, what David brought to that was the micro perspective, really, that comes out of this particular set of encounters in what's now the Great Lakes region of, of Canada and vicinity of Montreal and so on, which feeds into this picture. Right. And that that is where an encounter took place that literally inspired some of these texts that were popular in Europe yeah. and helped catalyze the Enlightenment. And I think one way of phrasing what you what you said earlier, and I, I want you to say more about the, the specific encounter, but is that the dialogue. So initially, these texts were published as dialogues where a, a European would be talking to an indigenous person and having this exchange. And then that gave way to the treatise. They were written out of the history. But the key, the key figure here is a statesman of the Wendat nation. I'm very happy, actually, because I finally succeeded after literally years of trying um, to reach out to the, the Wendat nation, uh, a colleague at the University of Toronto. I hadn't realized, because I've never been to Canada, I hadn't realized how the Anglophone world and the Francophone world don't actually talk to each other. And... I've been asking them for ages to reach out to individual scholars and, and, and organizations, um, you know, wanted to talk to about the book and getting nowhere. And I realize now it's because they are French speaking. Uh, there's a library in Quebec of the Wendat Nation, uh, which now has multiple copies of The Dawn of Everything. And I'll be sending French translations as soon as those come out, which is in a couple of weeks. So I'm really happy that I finally found a point of contact. And there are also historians and intellectuals. Uh, um, I think probably the most important for the material we're talking about is um, George Siwi, who I, I may well be pronouncing that wrong, who uh, I believe was the first member of the Wendat Nation to get a PhD in history. He wrote a very important book in the 1970s called For an American Auto-History. I think that's the correct title. It received praise from Claude Lévi-Strauss at the time. I, I don't get the feeling it's very widely read now. It's a very short book. And he talks about these dialogues between a, a Huron-Wendat statesman um, who goes by various names, um, usually Kandirang, Kondirang, and who lived in the 17th century. He was a major figure at the time. He was one of the signatories of the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701. And there are many corroborating and independent accounts that in addition to being a famous warrior and diplomat, um, he was just an extraordinarily brilliant thinker and debater who would be invited on a regular basis to the table of the governor 
then governor of that part of what Europeans called New France. He was a rather unsavory character called uh, Frontignac, who clearly also fancied himself as a bit of a debater. So he would invite Candiranc as the guest of honor. And this is all, you know, pre-enlightenment by some decades. They seem to have been having what are effectively proto-enlightenment salons somewhere in the vicinity of Montreal, Fort Mackinac, um, um, and debating all of the things that would go on to become central themes of, guess what, the enlightenment. And these dialogues were recorded. They were written down by a minor French nobleman who'd risen through the ranks of the colonial government of the time, uh, a character called um, the Baron La Hontan. La Hontan. I asked a French interviewer, the, am I saying this right? And she couldn't improve on La Hontan, so we'll go with that. Um, she said it's not a proper French name. <laughs> it's not, nobody in France would be called anything so silly, but it's actually a lake named after this, La Hontan. Uh, so it's a real thing, and he was a real person. He seems to have been a bit of an unfortunate character, and uh, he actually had to leave uh, New France because um, he fell out of favor with this Fontignac. But at some stage, he was his deputy. So he was certainly part of that circle that was witness to these debates. And when he got kicked out of the Americas and ended up as a vagrant on the streets of uh, Amsterdam, basically penniless, uh, he couldn't go back to France and claim his, and, you know, he was one of these minor nobles who didn't like the way it was going in France with absolutist monarchy and too much bureaucracy and so went off for adventures. He turned his life around by writing one of these dialogues called Curious Dialogues with a Savage of Great Wisdom Who Has Traveled. This is about 1703 that comes out. And it takes off like wildfire. And it's a dialogue between himself, Lantan, and a character called Adario. Adario is Candiro. We have corroborating evidence for this. And Adario makes these um, extraordinary speeches, which are basically scathing critiques of French and European society. Um, there are quite good reasons to believe, we don't know for 100% that Candiron actually went to Paris. Quite a few representatives of indigenous nations did go to Europe on delegations at that time. And he was the official spokesperson of, of his nation. So there are good reasons to believe he did. Even if he didn't, he certainly was very experienced at dealing with Europeans in European settings, in colonial European towns and so on. And he writes these, uh, or rather Lantan writes on his behalf, these scathing critiques of everything from Christianity to the use of money to um, health and diet, uh, uh, relations between men and women, the institution of marriage, and freedom and domination. When you compare, so first of all, when I say there's corroborating evidence, some of it's actually quite funny. Once um, Lantan sort of got, got back into favor in European intellectual circles, he went all over the place and he, he actually got accepted into the, the royal court in Hanover and became great friends with Leibniz. And there's actually a letter from Leibniz to somebody else who's obsessed with the curious dialogue that Blauentin's written, where Leibniz says, uh, he just drops it into the letter, he's like, by the way, you know, this uh, Adario um, is actually a, it's a real person. <laughs> oh, wow. Right, right. Uh, so there's that kind of thing. 
And you can compare the words of Adario in the dialogues to many other accounts, especially important are the 70-something volumes of the Jesuit relations, which are missionary accounts that were very widely read in Europe at the time, precisely because they presented surprising ideas about other ways to live. And the kind of themes that come back again and again in the relations uh, and in L'Antan about Europeans and the way we behave towards each other are things like, um, oh, taking orders. Why do you, you know, you're bossing each other around all the time and deferring to each other all the time, but at the same time, you're always trying to get one over on the other guy. And, you know, what is this constant sort of scrambling for position and competitiveness and one-upness and so on? And it's clear that... Um, Many First Nations people regarded their own ways of life as infinitely superior uh, to what they witnessed in European society at the time. There's a great account of that in Montaigne's essays from the 1500s. The cannibal. Yeah, where, where, the, where essentially there some indigenous people from the Americas are brought to the court and absolutely shocked, if I remember correctly, by poverty in the streets but also by the fact that the Frenchman would take orders from a boy, the king, who de- who can't even grow a beard. That's right. Carlo Ginsburg has a very nice essay about it. Um, homelessness and destitution is another theme that recurs again and again and again in what we summarize in the book as the indigenous critique of European civilization. The idea that you would just let your own people fall between the cracks that way struck Many members of Iroquoian-speaking and Algonquin-speaking societies is strange and a bit unfathomable. Now, I want to stress here that we're drawing here on a body of literature, which has been out there for decades. You know, none, of, none of this is news. None of it should be very surprising. And a significant amount of it is actually by scholars of um, indigenous descent, indigenous heritage, but as non Americanists, if that's a word, we were often struck by how marginalized that literature really is and how um, data that would be seized upon and regarded as terribly important in our specialisms and in our fields like oral histories. You know, there's a very rich tradition of using oral histories in African studies, but we were constantly coming across these kind of nuggets of recordings of oral histories in the Americas, which has just totally dropped out of the literature. I mean, the last time they were cited was over a century ago. Probably the, the best example is um, the great tale of the Wogies, which is a little cautionary tale. It's a little fable. It comes somewhere in the middle of the book when we're talking about these societies in what today is Northern California, uh, somewhere around Oregon, Washington State where they meet, which is a story, an origin story of um, the Chetco nation, which was largely wiped out um, by European colonization. They ended up on a reservation somewhere called uh, Lincoln County, I think. And, And around the turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th, somebody recorded their story of where they came from. And it talks about how they came from further north, up towards sort of um, British Columbia, that direction, and how they came from people who kept slaves and raided each other for slaves. And um, it's very well known that um, 
on the, the northwest coast, the Pacific coast of, of um, North America and Canada. There were societies going back centuries, uh, hunter-gatherers actually, non-agricultural societies, uh, which lived in highly ranked uh, uh, arrangements, households with nobles, commoners and slaves, frequently raided each other for slaves. Slaves were hereditary, so your children would be slaves as well. The, I think the most detailed history of it is by a historian called Leland Donald, a book called Aboriginal Slavery on the Northwest Coast. But there is a point, if you go geographically southwards to roughly where the, the Chetco nation were existing at that time, slavery kind of fizzles out and gets replaced by um, completely different kinds of social, economic, moral, ethical systems, which are actually anti-slavery. And this story is a fabulous little morality tale about all the terrible things that might happen to you if you try to capture other people and make them work for you. And it's very important in our study because we're trying to ask a question there that doesn't seem to have been asked very often. But this is the story of the Wogies. This is the story of the Wogies, who um, are uh, a group of light-skinned people who come with um, superior technology to uh, sort of, um, well, but initially they're captured and uh, put to work because they're very skillful at making boats and textiles and so on. And as a result, their captors get very fat and lazy on the proceeds. So uh, the, uh, the captives run away and then they come back as vengeful white people, basically light-skinned people with guns, germs and steel to eradicate their former captors. So it's, it's a kind of cautionary tale not to enslave people. And it's an important piece of evidence because we discovered, um, this going back to this whole issue of hunter-gatherers, you know, the idea that being a hunter-gatherer necessarily implies a certain kind of society. Here's a case where we have two uh, groups of, of non-agricultural people, hunting, foraging, fishing peoples, living uh, along the west coast of uh, the Americas with entirely different social systems, one of which includes the, the keeping of slaves and one of which doesn't. It turns out almost nobody has actually asked the question, how did this happen? How do you end up, you know, if you haven't got a physical barrier like a wall or an army or something to stave off slavers and the practice of, you know, how, how, how do you actually end up with two so different uh, moral and ethical and social systems coexisting cheek by jowl in the same area? So this is the question we tried to ask, which doesn't seem to have been asked before, which is interesting in itself. You know, there's just a tendency to subsume all of them under a heading like, oh, you know, the anthropological favorites, so they're complex hunter-gatherers, they're affluent hunter-gatherers, this has to be one or two types, which is kind of ridiculous. It's like saying that a um, Texas oil baron and a medieval Egyptian poet are basically the same kind of people because they both eat a lot of corn or wheat. <laughs> it's inherently silly. Um, but it's an example of how the mode of production or the mode of livelihood has become the, you know, such a dominant category. Whether you're coming out of a Marxian tradition or not, um, there's, there's an idea that simply because we're talking about non-farming peoples, that their history was kind of arrested. So even if they're doing things like having kings and nobles or um, 
keeping great surpluses of wealth in storehouses, somehow it's supposed to not matter in evolutionary terms. They're still hunter-gatherers. Yeah, let's drill into this. I mean, first, first I'm curious, though, so is the story of the Wogis from before European settlers came, or is it post-settlement? Oh, it's, well, we don't know, but there's a very interesting study by a former colleague of mine, Kevin Edinburgh, which is a very detailed, um, actually statistically informed study of oral histories, um, not from that exact region, but from further north, actually from the northwest coast, which are stories that have been told for generations about warfare and also big geographical events like earthquakes and you know things that would make a mark on people's memories. And uh, he and his colleagues actually did a brilliant study of the development of these narratives and tried to marry them up to archaeological evidence for the, you know, the, the ebb and flow of periods of violence and disruption and periods of peace. And they found that they do actually match up with, with, with extraordinary fidelity. So there, there's independent research which suggests that, that indigenous oral histories may in fact contain a significant amount of historical information. This one, and this is what I mean about you know, neglected sources or sources just being ignored or pushed to the margins. You know, we've, we found this source, but the last time it was cited in any academic study was about 1910, and then it drops out of the literature. An even more extraordinary example of this was the... Um, the accounts that we hit on of this pre-Columbian democracy in what's now Mexico called Tlaxcala. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out the dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory in strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's bit.ly slash dig catalyst. So one of the things you're saying is that so much of our thinking about the evolution of human society is based on myth. And so what, in a way, what you and David are doing is saying, well, let's look at the facts. Let's look at the archaeological record. Let's see what it says. And one of the myths it challenges is this idea of linear social evolution. You've, you've said this in various ways, but I just want to kind of really bring it to the surface. And this idea that, you know, yes, uh, we have this linear mode of evolution from hunter-gatherers into chieftains into the, to the state or whatever categories we're going to use. And Marxists have this too. You mentioned this just now that there's Marxists are also attached to this. And, and in a way, what you all are saying is that the archaeological record doesn't back that up in any way. The evidence is so varied. It's, it's very interesting to also look at where that whole um, idea of modes of production 
comes from as a way of organizing history is, is intrinsically related to what we were talking about before, which is this indigenous critique, this powerful critique of European civilization. What happens and what we talk about in, in the early chapters of the book is a very interesting process by which European writers and, and thinkers begin producing all these imitations of La Hontan's curious dialogues with the savage. Um, they change the identity of the indigenous interlocutor. So I forget who has what. Voltaire has a half Huron, somebody else has a Tahitian, sometimes it's a Persian. But it's still the sentiments, you know, the substance comes from those dialogues with Kandirong. And one of the most important and influential takeoffs or imitations of this is the Letters with a Peruvian Woman, which is written by the Saloniste, French Saloniste, uh, Madame Graffini, who David, to his eternal annoyance, every time we gave a talk or a seminar about this, he would call her Madame Givenchy. And I would turn to him and say, David, it's... Uh, Graffini is very famous and she was uh, you know, probably the best-selling writer in, in Europe at the time and she's famous in feminist studies among other things for the, these letters. Um, in other words she, she was a worthy target, she was very popular. Very popular and mixed in very uh, important intellectual circles and she sent out drafts, so she, her uh, her indigenous critique is put into the mouths of an Inca princess called Zelia, and um, she who is not a, not back not a real person, <laughs> not remotely. Yes, uh, Inca Empire is a kind of utopian socialist experiment where everything gets redistributed, and it's interesting because she sends a draft of her uh, letters. Uh, with Zelia to her inner circle, which includes the then young budding economist and physiocrat uh, A.R.J. Turgot, who today is credited, along with Adam Smith, with inventing that whole linear modes of production version of human history that you were just referring to, Astra. This is not a coincidence, and we know it's not because we've actually got the letters, we've got the correspondence between them, where Tilgur says to her, well, all this stuff you're talking about, you know, these free peoples and, the, you know, they can have these quite large and sophisticated societies without hierarchy. It's very interesting. And remember, we're just a few decades before the French Revolution here. So this is incendiary stuff. This is very, it's very you know, obviously we're not against freedom, against freedom or against equality, but... Do you not think this is a tad dangerous? <laughs> you know, maybe you could change the ending. He tries to get her to change the ending of the book so that Zelia, the Inca princess, realizes the error of her ways and comes around to good common sense and realizes that actually, you know, if you want to live in a technologically sophisticated society, you really do need a sophisticated division of labor, which implies class differences and there should be money and people are tossing us, basically. No. Uh, she says, bugger off, Tilgo. She publishes her book exactly as she uh, intended. And Tilgo spends the next few years basically getting his intellectual revenge. And let's, let's admit it, he kind of won because he writes these theories of universal history, a whole series of essays, where he flips the whole thing in a way that was so effective that we're basically still living with it. So his argument 
in brief is that you can have all of these freedoms and indigenous peoples have all of these freedoms, not, however, because they are superior to us, but because they are inferior. And what he means by inferior is inferior in material terms, in terms of productivity. And you get the first real occurrence in European thought of this stage-like ladder based on modes of food production and, and the use of energy resources. So you can be free suddenly if you're primitive, technologically primitive, you live in a, a don't wear clothes and you live in funny little huts. You can do all those things, but if you want to live. So he effectively relegates people like Kandirog to a completely imaginary, fictitious, evolutionary stage, so that in fact, even the existence of someone like Kandirog in the contemporary world, let alone the idea that anything they might have to say about European nations could be of any interest or relevance to the way we organize ourselves, suddenly becomes irrelevant. At best, they can tell us about some remote epoch of the human past. Now, I'm afraid to say it, but modern anthropology carries the weight of this Tilgo tradition even today. You know, this whole idea that you can cherry pick modern hunter-gatherer societies. They all look, I found one that's very, very egalitarian and so on and say, well, that's representative of the original human condition. This is where it begins. So we, we found we had to dig. This podcast is called The Dig, right? I'm an archaeologist. This is perfect. Uh, you know, we, we really had to dig down into the roots of, of this whole notion of modes of production. And we found that it really originates in this very conservative counter-reaction to the indigenous critique. But also, strangely, to a woman's use of the indigenous critique to imagine a past with the purpose of changing the future, right? Because her book sort of pretends to be... Absolutely. I mean, yes. Her book is a critique of the present, actually, and, and sort of sowing another world could be possible. So it's incredibly convoluted and strange. That's right. And it's important to realize that actually this is where our standard view of history effectively originates, because then you realize how peculiar it would be if after a century of empirical research in a field like archaeology, our evidence of the human past resembled it in any way whatsoever. I mean, wouldn't that be peculiar? And guess what? It really doesn't. <laughs> and most of our book is not about this stuff. Most of our book is actually saying, well, what if we just do away with this whole blinkered now that we know where it comes from, let's just do away with the myth. Look at the evidence that's before us through a whole different series of perspectives where we don't start off by making all these teleological assumptions that we're looking at earlier versions of ourselves. Wonderful. So let's, let's, there's so many amazing examples in the book, and I'd love to hear about some of the Mesoamerican ones, but maybe tie that to the question of scale, which you began as one of the big, the big sort of insights. And I've also had these conversations with David because Occupy also inspired my musings on the question of scale. And there is this assumption in political philosophy and just in conversations with people that, yeah, sure, you can have democracy, but in a small group or maybe in a small city where there's a town hall. But the fact there are so many of us and our society is complicated means we are going to have to have hierarchy and exploitation and elites. And that's just realism. It's like math. You know, the more people there are, the more domination required. And David and I would always joke and say, have these people never been in a small group before? 
There's all sorts of domination. Have you ever been in a family? There's all sorts of inequality. And so I was so appreciative of this intervention. But talk about what the archaeological record shows and how it completely confounds those assumptions. It's very interesting um, what's coming out, not just of archaeology, but even out of fields like sociobiology, which have been very attached to this idea that small means egalitarian and big means complex and therefore hierarchical. There was a very important paper published uh, last year in the Journal of Human Evolution that actually went back and looked again at the demographic realities of modern hunter-gatherer societies in Australia and Africa and elsewhere, and found that their families are a bit like our families, where actually your blood relatives are often people you cannot get on with at all. And you go to extraordinary lengths to move away and distance yourself. It's just that they had very sophisticated ways of doing this um, kind of hospitality systems that would span continents so that far from living in small scale societies, they would actually have this kind of social world that everybody was aware of where potentially you could interact with many, many thousands of people. In reality, you wouldn't do that but potentially those relationships existed. And this very much... In in reality, you just mean day to day, like the chances were your life was... In the same way that you'll never meet most Americans, but you all regard yourselves as living in America, right? You have this, it's what Ben Anderson called imaginary communities, right? Uh, so they had those too, and they were large scale, multi-generational, continent spanning. You know, the idea that people lived in this closed, siloed, small world of hunter-gatherers turns out. So you, would, you, for example, would be connected to people who are also in a clan that you were a part of? They could be potential marriage partners. North America, you know, the areas that anthropologists describe as having totemic clan systems are exactly of this nature, where you could go hundreds of miles, move completely out of the zone of your biological relatives or even your language group, and get to another place and still find that the people there had a moral obligation to look after you and take you in and feed you and value effectively make you part of their family. So you have this freedom of movement, which is predicated on hospitality. Now, this very much echoes and reinforces what we see in the archaeological record, which is that before you have cities, so cities first appear on various continents between about 5,000 and 4,000 years ago. Before cities, what exists are not these little isolated pockets of human population. It's quite the opposite. What exists are these great regional systems. Archaeologists have never known quite what to call them. You know, they used to call them culture areas. Now people go for more scientific-y sounding words like interaction zones and spheres and whatever. But whatever they are, they are they're kind of like these great hospitality zones where people share similar ways of making houses, burying their dead, forms of cuisine. And they're so extensive that actually when you do get cities first appearing, it doesn't really look like a, a scaling up. It almost looks like a contraction of human populations into one place, like one of these regional systems getting fixed in a spot. So the idea that, that having cities in itself would cause some kind of great psychological rupture where people suddenly had to give up all their freedoms and appoint managers and bureaucrats and, and kings and whatever and established class systems is, is off the mark empirically. People were already living in, in, in very extensive societies. And in fact, this is one of the things that used to fascinate David was when I would talk to him about um, how in a way what the archaeology shows us is the opposite of globalization. It's kind of like globalization in reverse. 
So first we populate, you know, we go out of Africa, we populate the entire planet, right? That's pretty big. And then culturally what you see is kind of a process of shrinkage where, you know, you begin to get these regional uh, uh, zones of cultural interaction. And then after the end of the last ice age, the beginning of the Holocene, you get more of them and they start getting a bit smaller. And eventually over time, you wind up with nation states, which are often tiny, you know, compared to these earlier regional systems and obviously have very firm boundaries. I mean, we now have borders and passports and all the rest of it. So actually in, in, in the long sort of sweep of history, our social worlds in many ways have got smaller you know, we think of globalization as making the world smaller through high-speed communication, airplanes and all the rest of it. But in, in many ways, as the population of the Earth has expanded and the technologies have improved and, you know, we can have Skype calls like this, embarrassingly, we're on Skype. Uh, <laughs> we're playing Atari today. Uh, yeah, the, we can do all this, but actually, where are we? I'm sitting in my office. You're sitting, I don't know, flat. You know, our social worlds have contracted possibilities for changing our identities, moving, being other sorts of people. So we try to document some of that in the book. Tell us some tales. Tell us some tales of these ancient egalitarian cities that also defy expectations, again, because there's the assumption that with concentration of people comes concentration of resources in the hands of the few and disempowerment for the many. Well, that's another um, case of David just posing the question to me. Uh, he asked me very early on in our research, he said, so is there anything like an egalitarian city? Is there evidence for anything like that? And I started telling him about these sites north of the Black Sea. There are these settlements north of the Black Sea uh, in what are now the, the modern countries of Ukraine and Moldova. Um, and um, these are sites that were actually first investigated by Ukrainian and Russian archaeologists back in the 1970s using what were then very sophisticated techniques. And they found these absolutely vast settlements, which were as old as the first cities in Mesopotamia, what today is Iraq and Syria, which are generally regarded as the earliest cities in the world. They were as old as those, and they were as large as those, three, four hundred hectare settlements. Knowledge, remember this is the Cold War, so Western researchers and scientists actually generally either weren't very aware of these discoveries or a little bit skeptical. But in more recent times, there have been a lot of international projects in that region. There are British and German and American archaeologists working, well, actually, until the recent conflict in Ukraine, um, were doing a lot of work there and a lot of very good scientific work. And the results have been astonishing. So what they found are these huge settlements, tens of thousands of people, which are, they begin about 6,000 years ago. So they're as old as the first Mesopotamian cities. They're as large in spatial extent. They don't have a writing system. So what we can reconstruct about them comes from the archaeology, from the material culture. And it's extraordinary because there are, no temples, no palaces, no public sort of civic center, no center as such, no obvious evidence for wealth inequalities, no rich burials, actually very few burials at all. What you have are these settlements planned on the image of a circle, like some Basque uh, urban traditions in more recent times. The image of a circle, concentric circles of houses, so nobody is first, nobody is last. And they look a bit like tree rings. 
the vast thousands of people in these circular arrangements of houses. And very careful fieldwork and research has shown that these circles are actually divided into neighborhoods. Each neighborhood has an assembly house of some kind. Wow, right? It's amazing. It's it, it's pretty mind blowing. But so I was describing all this stuff to David. He's like, "Well, you're making this up. I, I would have heard of this, surely. You know, I'm, I'm actually quite into this stuff, and I haven't heard of it. Why haven't I heard of it? So reflecting on this, first of all, the first thing to note is that nobody at the time was calling them cities. There, there were all these kind of euphemisms that, that scientists and archaeologists would use for these settlements. The favorite one is megasites, which is quite generous. Uh, other people would just call them overgrown villages. Uh, in the book, we just call them cities. Because, right, you're into a circular argument here where you say, in order to be qualified, you know, they don't show up in the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Ancient Cities. Because the definition of a city, as it's come down to us, is inherently uh, that it has to be some kind of megalopolis with a big sort of commercial district or political district or administrative district in the middle, and it has to be hierarchical and centralized, and you know, all the, all the things that Gordon Child talked about generations ago when he defined the urban revolution. So there's just a kind of closed hermeneutic there about what a city is, which we try to basically break apart in the book and argue, well, if you're going to talk about scale, and the actual effects of scale on human populations, you can't move the goalposts. <laughs> you know, when you have a society scaling up that doesn't produce uh, class stratification and rigid hierarchies, you can't suddenly go blind and say, oh, no, we'll just ignore that one and move on to the next one. You know? Or what if we defined a city, or at least a good city, as abundant, equitable housing, right? Which is another... It's something that you see in the site you just mentioned, but is also visible in other cities. Do you want to talk about those examples? Well, the best example of that, which is really striking, there's been a lot of a lot of very good scientific work done on it uh, uh, recently, is the um, the city that we know as Teotihuacan in the Valley of Mexico, which is actually the Aztec. It's the name that the Aztec gave to this much more ancient city, which begins to attract people around the year zero, when there seems to be a lot of seismic activity in the region and a lot of um, population movement, and people begin to congregate in their thousands in this place. And initially, their efforts to create a civic infrastructure um, are focused on the construction of monuments, which you can still go and see today. The, we know them again by the Aztec names, the, the Pyramids of the Sun and the Moon, the Way of the Dead, the Temple of the, the Feathered Serpent. And it all looks like it's going in, in a fairly predictable way towards something like a later, you know, let's say classic Maya city-state with um, all the big ponchos at the top and pyramid temples. And uh, you know, and there, there's evidence again, like a Cahokia of ritual killings. It looks like it's following that rather... Uh, typical pattern. But then something changes around 250 AD, about 300 AD. Uh, they completely close down the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. They don't build any more pyramids. And instead, they embark on this extraordinary project of social housing. So the whole, the whole settlement is put on a grid plan. And we're talking about 
by this stage, we're getting up to the latest estimates of populations of about 100,000 people. Multi-ethnic, we've got evidence of people moving into the Valley of Mexico from as far away as Yucatan, like the Maya region. There's a Maya district. There's like a Chiapas town in Teotihuacan. There's people coming in from the Gulf Coast to the north. And so we've got a complex multi-ethnic city organized on a grid plan where everybody is living in these multi-family apartment compounds. Now, when archaeologists first discovered these and started describing them, they actually thought they were palaces because they're so beautiful. They've all got this fabulous, uh, beautiful plastered walls and there's frescoes on the walls and there's a community. And they're pretty spacious, right? Very spacious. Yeah. And, you know, now the, the, the archaeological science is so good, we can reconstruct something of the diets of the people who lived there and everyone's living pretty well. Yeah, and many of them thought the, the, these must be the elite quarters or something until they realize that everyone in the city is living in one of these palaces. So, you know, either everyone's a king. Or there are palaces for the people. Right. And actually, this is the way that the debate has swung in archaeology now. I think there, it, it, it's not, you know, there, there never is a total consensus, but it's not really contested anymore that uh, certainly for the last few centuries of its existence, this was a, a city of extraordinary scale and grandeur with very low levels of inequality, where the vast majority of people actually enjoyed a standard of living that would be the envy of any modern city. And these apartment blocks are about as far as you can get from our notion of social housing, high-rise people crammed in. No, I mean, the, these are very, very comfortable uh, multifamily <laughs> villas, like luxury villas, basically. Right. And I mean, and all the more interesting because, as you said, there's evidence that things were going in a very different direction. So once again, reaffirms this not a notion of yours, but the truth that people have made choices, that they've rebelled, that they've experimented since the dawn of humanity. <laughs> this is not an evolutionary one-way street where you start growing crops and cities and inequality, and there's no going back. And Cahokia is very important here. I mean, and another book that we talk about in our book uh, was the one that came out a few years ago by Jim Scott, James C. Scott, Against the Grain, which is a great book. And, and we were in touch with Jim. He actually came here to London to the Institute of Archaeology, and we hung, hung out a bit and, and tried to help him with some of those um, chapters. But, um, you know, the argument of the book, which I will now ridiculously oversimplify, is that predatory elites generally like their subjects to grow grain, uh, because it's very easy to count and tax and pile up in big mounds, and storehouses. So um, it's a very widely misunderstood book, actually. I mean, some people seem to think he's arguing that the mere fact of, of doing cereal agriculture somehow, you know, destines you to have an authoritarian terrorist. It has nothing to do with it. Actually, what he's arguing is that what he calls state elites, we don't use the term state for the reasons that I explained earlier for these earlier forms of authority, um, are predisposed to it. You know, they will actively try and discourage their subjects from doing anything other than growing grain. So they'll try and disrupt more flexible subsistence systems because they're hard to keep track of and hard to monitor and control. And Jim's book is largely about Eurasia. It's mainly about China and Mesopotamia. And if you read it in isolation, you do 
rather get the sense that 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 not that there's a one-way street because he draws great attention to what he calls the barbarian societies on the fringes. And he argues that, you know, until quite recently in human history, the barbarians basically had it good. They could, they could go in and loot and plunder and get all the benefits of these settled hierarchical agrarian societies, but they could also run away. But nevertheless, you know, it, it, it begs the question of could it have been any different for the ones that were caught in that kind of agrarian state, what he calls grain states. Now, what about them? And we go into this in the book, and one of the ways we do it is precisely by widening the canvas of history on which we're working, and including the Americas, which don't feature in Jim's book, because Cahokia was basically a grain state in his sense. You know, it had embarked on that journey. But as we discussed earlier, people changed course in a very dramatic way. So that by the time Europeans started showing up in those parts of the world, there was nothing more to be seen of it, and it had been replaced by something much more egalitarian. Another thing that you challenge is this idea, and you've said this throughout the interview, is that once you do start farming, you're stuck. And you talk about seasonal variations in lifestyle. That's an important motif. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but also maybe more generally on another recurring theme, which is play. Because you talk about play farming, there's a whole wonderful section on play kings. I've, this book is very playful. I feel that you know you you've even said that you and David began it in a kind of spirit of play. Why does play matter, and what does the fact that people the people tried things out without fully committing? What, why why is that important? I read recently something that um, people think that after the pandemic, there's been a play crisis. You know, they were expecting kids to go back. School and just spontaneously recreate, you know, like kids in the Narnia stories, <laughs> just start playing wizards and witches and everything again. And and a lot of kids are not doing it. And there are various theories about why they're not doing it, including the fact that they may have just noticed what mummy and daddy actually do. Uh, <laughs> that school doesn't finish, you know, it goes on forever and your destiny is to end up sitting in front of a computer taking orders from some anonymous person, <laughs> chasing girls and, uh, oh my God, you know, because, uh, you know, what, what do kids play? They play at being adults and that usually means some kind of freedom, you know, of being more, not being at school, right? And now yeah, we talk just... about myth busting. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, this is uh, slightly uh, nothing to do with our book. We have no discussion of the contemporary play crisis, but it is relevant in a way because if we're having a play crisis, we're also having it in, in the way we talk about history. You know, we've taken our play crisis and kind of carved it into the annals of all human history. This is the standard story that you get in um, best-selling books of Yuval Harari, Jared Diamond and other other well-known authors is really a variant on the Old Testament, uh, which is really a story about the dangers of play. Don't mess with nature, because it'll get you, it'll bite you in the ass. Inventing agriculture—they're all variants on Rousseau, but also on the Bible. We mess, we had to mess it up. You know, we had to play, we had to tinker with with with, with God, with nature, and unwittingly found ourselves trapped. Very Promethean, right? <laughs> Very. So you have this notion of the agricultural revolution is supposedly the moment, I think Harari actually calls it the wheat trap. We got trapped by wheat. We started farming. Let me just say, I don't believe a word of what I'm about to say. And in the book, we explain why it's entirely wrong. But the story he tells is along 
the wines that, you know, we start farming, we're growing the wheat, and then you notice, oh, you know, there are stones and we've got to move the stones out of the fields and, oh, wait, wait, we've got to water the wheat. And, you know, before we know it, we're living, we're working all the time. We're living in these, uh, you know, kind of industrious, highly organized, and, you know, suddenly there's a surplus and from that comes private property. And, oh, my God, there are kings everywhere. It's, it's, it's all Rousseau all over again. It's also entirely wrong. What we realize and what we try to explain in the book using the latest uh, scientific work on the origins of agriculture, not just from the Middle East, but from China and Mesoamerica, all these, you know, we know now that there are at least about 15 different centers of uh, independent origins of farming where crops are first domesticated, animals first domesticated. But <coughs> it looks nothing like an agricultural revolution. For a start, in every part of the world, it takes about 3,000 years. That's a pretty long revolution, right? And what's going on in those thousands of years is what is technically known in the literature, in the anthropological literature, as low-level food production. We do indeed refer to it as play farming, as a kind of more friendly, user-friendly, reader-friendly term, which is various things. Um, it's people engaging in cultivation and raising crops and keeping livestock, but not fully committing to a, a strict agricultural regime of the kind that Jim Scott's peasant farmers are, are kind of locked into. <coughs> Instead of that, you get these much more flexible and diverse subsistence strategies where, yes, you know, you may be farmers for part of the year, but then seasonally you'll flip and um, demographically societies will pulse in and out and you'll actually switch between being foragers and farmers for part of the year or perhaps crop cultivation constitutes just a small part of a much more diverse set of activities. And we actually describe um, in the book how the early, early farming cultures, which seem to have spread uh, most successfully um, and expanded most successfully, were the ones that remained diverse and flexible. It's about biodiversity, if you like, rather than this old story of biopower, where the farmers kind of outbreed the foragers and overwhelm them demographically. Now seems to be entirely wrong. I have a colleague here in London, Stephen Shannon, who's done a lot of work on this. And what it shows very interestingly, for example, for Neolithic Europe, is that the first experiments with farming um, actually go quite um, dreadfully wrong. And uh, it's the farming populations there that get over-specialized. Right. In this sense, play can be dangerous sometimes too. I mean, there is that as a in some of the examples. Well, yeah. I mean, the wider point about play is that the these episodes of the human past that we've been taught to think of as thresholds that we crossed, whereby we got trapped into some kind of linear path of development and there's no going back. Actually, when you look at the evidence for those periods of human history, whether it's the origins of farming or the move into cities, that's not what they look like at all. They're much more experimental. They're much more playful. There are many more varieties of all of them. And in a way, this is the conclusion we arrive at. If you wanted to make some sort of generalization about human nature or human capacities based on the dawn of everything, uh, in my opinion, uh, I can't ask David anymore, but in my opinion, it would be that, which is that it's wrong 
to begin the human story by arguing about, you know, were we innately this or innately that? We innately altruistic and peaceful, or are we innately competitive and, and, and warlike? And, you know, the, what we argue in the book is that effectively what makes us human in the first place is precisely the capacity to evaluate and navigate between these alternatives as far back as the evidence takes us. This is what we find. And in fact, you know, if there's a, a pattern to the past we, we begin to uh, uh, pull out of our research, it's precisely that we are a much more playful and, and creative species than we generally give ourselves credit for. And this is important because we are by general consent at a juncture of history right now, we've got COP26 going on, where this is exactly where we're being tested is our capacity to, to change our societies. It, it occurred to me the other day that, um, you know, all the technological determinists have suddenly gone very, very quiet. Because if you seriously believe that, I mean, technological determinism was not always a conservative position. Actually, the people who adopted it in the 1960s, like Leslie White, um, you know, they're, they're actually quite innovative social thinkers. But if you believe that, I think mean, it's become a conservative position that, like the books of Ian Morris, you know, foragers, farmers, fossil fuels, that our mode of extracting energy from the environment determines the kind of society we're going to have. Now, if you actually follow the logic, of, I'm not a technological determinist, as you'll gather from the book, but if you follow the logic of that to its natural conclusion, unless you're a climate denier or something, you have to now accept that radical social change is inevitable if we're going to stay on the planet. So in fact, the technological determinists may be our saviors. I don't, it would be a great irony, a great irony of intellectual history if um, you know they became the true radicals because they were faithful to their theory. But so far, all I can see is that they've gone very quiet. Yes, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, that's such a, thinking about David Graeber, it, it's such a David Graeber message, right? And that we we can live differently than we're doing right now. And that there's this capacity for creativity, for reinvention. You know, that is the part of the book, I think, that that made me feel the presence of my friend the most strongly. Right, because you were in the global justice movement together. And it's a very logical question to ask if you're interested in other ways of organizing society. It's just, you know, this is anthropology. You look at all the different ways that, that people have done that. But what we discovered is that when scholars and writers go to do that and, and characterize the, the broad sweep of human history, what they produce is exactly the opposite. It's, it's a teleological story about how the present was completely inevitable and, uh, and we're basically trapped. And it's wrong. I mean, it's empirically wrong. Another theme I, I, maybe that's worth ending on is there's a, a form of creativity in the book that is a kind of creative deterrence that you see people come to over again, deterring domination, deter deterring hierarchy um, through different methods. And I, I was just wondering about your thoughts on those strategies uh, as we think about designing other societies, other forms the state could take, uh, and, 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 the, and giving our predecessors credit for thinking about that, you know, thinking about preventing those social catastrophes that that they lived through or their ancestors lived through to prevent them from happening again, uh, and and you know what are the mechanisms for obstructing obstructing the abuse of power? Yes, I mean you're making me think about threads of thought in the book. That that I mean it's as you'll know 
you know, you've read it. Um, it's not a dogmatic book. We don't say, you know, lay down the law and we, you know, we've discovered everything. And we, this is it. It's it's very much. Um, I think it's a very very humble book because it it's constantly reminding the reader of how much we don't know and the humility in that is really a crucial ingredient. I think it's trying to reframe the questions and ask better questions. And I mean, what what your your, your question makes me go off in various different directions. One of them it makes me think about the various points in in the book where we do try to define exactly what's going on when people do manage to defeat uh, very you know, structural hierarchies. Um, well, I mean, this is always the problem with the, the Rousseauian tradition, is that he didn't have a bloody clue what a free society would look like. I mean, his state of nature is, is, is a weird fantasy where we don't even live in groups, you know, we're just individuals. Uh, sort of stomping through the forest, blissfully happy and trying to avoid each other because we might have to form social classes or something. I mean, it's just weird. So, you know, he, he might have agreed with Kandiaronk had they ever met about the virtues of freedom, but only Kandiaronk would have had any clue about what that actually looks like in practice. So um, we eventually realised that you can reduce the variety of, um, of, of strategies and, and forms of resistance to that sort of hierarchy to three basic freedoms. And again, we're not dogmatic. We're not saying we discovered all of them or something like that. These are patterns that came out of the empirical evidence that we're looking at. And they boil down to three. The first one is something we've already talked about today, which is simply the freedom to escape your surroundings and move away, predicated on the expectation that somebody will receive you at your point of destination, so based on hospitality. Second freedom is the freedom to disobey arbitrary authority, which we've also talked about um, in, in the context of indigenous uh, uh, revulsion, of Europeans deferring to each other all, all the time and, and pulling rank, but not simply disobeying, but disobeying in the knowledge that you won't therefore be cut out of your society and ostracized but you will be debated and, and I mean this is the this is the the source I mean even Jesuits who were who were completely opposed to uh, uh, indigenous uh, forms of, of, of culture and wanted to convert these people had to concede and they do in their writings that they had incredibly highly developed cultures of debate and the reason for that was precisely that uh, you know chiefs existed and they could give orders but nobody had to listen to them Nobody had to obey these orders. If you wanted to engage people in a collective project, the only real way to do it was to actually persuade them. And that, you know, that's the intellectual tradition that produces Kandiaronk. That's what he comes out of is this incredibly rich culture of debate and persuasion and oratory. Um, so that's the second freedom to disobey orders, which is so the root of, of healthy democracy. And uh, the third freedom, which is really built on the first two is simply the freedom to imagine the society you live in otherwise. In other words, to kind of just tear a little hole in the fabric of your society, reconfigure it in another form, and then actually make that happen, which seems to be what our ancestors were doing for most of history, but also seems to be what we've forgotten how to do. So in a way, you know, if we're, if we're replacing Rousseau with something else, um, it would be that, yes, 
we have lost something as a species, but it's not equality. It's, it's this freedom to actually imagine and reinvent the ways we live together and take part in that collective. Wonderful. I can't think of a better note to end on. David Wingrow, it's been such a huge pleasure talking to you and it was such an enormous pleasure reading this book that I've heard about for over a decade from from David. And you know, it was great to see the results of all of his excitement and in your collaboration. And I just want to recommend to all the dig listeners out there that they get the dawn of everything and really savor it because it's a it's a very unique book with the capacity to change the future by reassessing the past. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Astra. David Wengrow is professor of comparative archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology, University College London, and the author of several books, including The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, co-authored with David Graeber. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer, and the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? Her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She co-founded the Debt Collective, a union for debtors, after David Graeber recruited her into the debt resistance movement in 2012. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Via Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But really and truly, what really helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling friends, family, strangers, anyone about the show, why you listen to it, why you like it, why they should listen to it, why they will likely like it. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 